Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet and for pigs. My name is Kevin Folt. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And this week, we're going to take a look at a very important issue with respect to porcine health. Some of the major problems that are met by uh, by folks who raise pigs, uh, there's a number of viral diseases which are particularly problematic. And today we're going to talk about one called PERS, which is the porcine respiratory and reproductive uh, something. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll find out in a minute. We're speaking with Dr. Christine Burkard. She is a assistant professor at the Roslyn Institute, who we've interviewed people with before. And uh, she's the lead on the project, which is investigating a novel strategy using gene editing to limit the problem of PERS. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Burkard. Yeah, hi. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, this is really cool because I, I love the topics around pigs because the the viruses that they suffer from in production can be really insidious. And so first of all, what what is this particular virus? And and I I forgot the acronym in the beginning. What is the exact virus and the illness it causes? Yeah, so it's porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome virus indeed. Quite a mouthful and you can just shorten it to PERS, which is what your favorite cat says. And it's a really big problem in the pig industry and it infects pigs of all ages and it causes disease in pigs of all ages. It causes them respiratory problems and fever, inappetence and lethargy. So they're overall just growing much slower than they usually would. But the problems are biggest when we look at the very young piglets. They can suffer not only from severe respiratory distress, but also from diarrhea, etc., and high fevers. And then you actually get to a point where a lot of them die. And the other big component, which is the reproductive component of the name, is that when pregnant sows get infected, they can lose their entire litter in abortions, or the piglets can die in utero and then be born as, as mummified piglets. And also if they get infected in utero, in the mum, then they get born weak and a lot of them die shortly after being born. And so is this really a problem in pig production for, for say, uh, pork? Or is this more in the reproductive side in raising piglets for use in that, uh, in, in eventually for livestock use? It's truly both components that play a big role and that has a serious uh, economic impact so one of the sides is obviously the, the animal loss, and it's estimated that in the US it costs about $650 million per year in animal loss due to the slower growth, so it takes longer to get pigs to slaughter weight, but also because obviously we lose animals. But the second component is the combating of the virus through biosafety measures, 
vaccination, but also the virus really primes pigs for secondary infections uh, with bacteria and other pathogens because it simply incapacitates the immune system. So also the use of antibiotics, different estimates, but it possibly doubles in the case of a PERS outbreak in a herd or even just with, with kind of a, a simmering PERS infection. So it's very important. So this is something that isn't just isolated in a few places here and there. Is this a really pervasive virus that affects all swine producers? Pretty much. Um, there's a few that manage to keep it out. Um, they have very, very vigorous uh, biosafety measures, but it's known that certain aspects do severely increase the rate of PERS occurrence. Uh, one of them is if farms have a very high turnover of pigs coming in and out, and especially the U.S. system is very um, dangerous for for that high turnaround. And then the other aspect is also that one of the combat strategies is to vaccinate pigs. But the virus is very good at evading the immune system, and it has a lot of different forms. Uh, not only does it have two different species, which was, are very, very distantly related, but even within those single species, there's a lot of variation going on. So only life attenuated vaccines um, pr- protect pigs slightly more broadly. Um, but that has as a result that the virus can revert back to virulence and actually cause disease. So the vaccine causes disease in the end. And that is indeed also a major component. Surprisingly, what has been found in, in Britain in particular is that neither stock density nor indoor outdoor farming or the size of the farm have an effect. So it's both for organic and traditional farming. It's really a problem. And can you tell us a little more about the virus itself? What kind of virus is it and why does it, what makes it such a problem? So it is an RNA virus uh, with a lipid membrane envelope. And the simple fact of being an RNA virus, it's in the family of uh, arteriviruses in the genus of nidoviruses, so nested replication, as we call it, very closely related to coronaviruses, of which we may know SARS and MERS, the very severe human pathogens. But because it has that RNA genome, it is highly mutagenic because it's not as it's being replicated or as it's replicating itself, really, it's not proofreading what it generates. So we call it we we call them quasi species because whatever a cell produces of PERS virus is never the same thing. You're going to have thousands of different variants in there because the virus makes mistakes uh, whenever it replicates its own genome, which makes it very highly mutagenic. And we're always, with vaccines, for instance, we're always a step behind the virus. Wow. So this thing actually, because the ones that um, can survive um, or are not detected by the immune system, they, they survive. So you're always under constant selection for this thing that is rapidly changing. So it's a real bat. So am I understanding that correctly, that that's why this is such a formidable virus? Yes, so multiple things as well. Um, the virus has a very specific target cell in the host. It only infects macrophages, so cells of the innate immune system. 
and it attacks them and it kills them. But at the same time, it actually modulates how they signal to the adaptive immune response. And what we see from other life attenuated vaccines, such as classical swine fever vaccine is a good example. When the pigs have had a PERS infection, a life attenuated vaccine with classical swine fever has no effect whatsoever for two weeks after the PERS infection has occurred. So what the virus does, it just incapacitates the entire adaptive immune system for two weeks. And that is reflected when we look at the vaccines against PERS as well, because it takes, even in a normal infection, it takes 35 days for a pig to build up a proper immune response to the virus. And are there other uh, types of resistance that are present in pig populations? Like, do you see in, uh, you know, warthogs or, you know, wild pigs, some sort of um, naturally occurring resistance? So we have very little data from the wild suets because Africa is uh, a, a white continent when we look at it with regards to purrs, because in the north where we have overlap with purrs, we don't have many pigs, so there doesn't seem to be much transmission to the south. And South Africa is the only country that has reported purrs outbreak so far. So there's very little data known about warthogs or red river hogs. What we have done is we've taken some warthog macrophages and tried to infect them, and they're really, really well uh, at replicating the virus. So they would be infectable. We have no idea, however, how they would react to a a real-life infection. And the wild boar that we see in in Europe, obviously, um, is very highly susceptible uh, to disease as well. But yet again, because they're living in the wild, it's not very well studied how it affects the pig. Okay, I see. So we're, we're speaking with Dr. Christine Burkard. She's a assistant professor at the Roslyn Institute as part of the University of Edinburgh system. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulta, host of the Talking Biotech podcast. And we're going on episode 200 with almost a million downloads. No kidding. It's been five years. or We're going into our fifth year. And the response has always been amazing. And I just can't believe that things are going as well as they are. However, when you start to communicate science in an effective way, you can't help but raise a few, eh, let's say, cockles. Get people a little bit upset about the communication and the information that you are disseminating. Now, throughout social media, it seems as though folks are not terribly excited about me or the work that I do. And it raises a lot of controversy that isn't, it is designed to remove me from a very important conversation. Now, there's a couple of ways you can deal with it. I could meet it head on and address their comments one by one. The problem is, is that when the comments have no merit, how do you possibly address them without giving them some credence. And so what I've chosen to do is ignore them. Let the trolls say what they want, let them do what they want, and that's fine. The flip side is, is that the allegations they make are especially troubling and things that we should take very seriously. So what's the middle ground that makes sense? What I've chosen to do is offer to speak to anybody about their concerns. If you see allegations or things that you've read 
that you think concern you, please reach out and contact me. I did three Skype calls last week and sat with somebody for coffee in town here yesterday. And um, it it was very nice. And we had a very eye-opening experience when people realized how information that's based on maybe a grain of truth here, maybe some something someone wrote here, is twisted and exploited uh, to harm others. That's the other side of this, is that I can't necessarily explain what this is and what it isn't without dragging others into the mud, and I don't want to go there. So reach out if you have questions. As always, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we continue with this episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Christine Burkard, who's a assistant professor at the University of Edinburgh's Roslyn Institute. And we're talking about HERS, the disease that affects pigs and has substantial costs for uh, hog operations, uh, both in preventing it as well as in treating and as well as loss from productivity. So we know that there's a problem with this virus that's highly communicable and rapidly mutating, but what are the solutions that your laboratory or your um, team has investigated? So in the early 2000s, a group in in uh, Belgium actually had a look at how the virus interacts with the host cells, the macrophages, and they found there was a specific receptor that helps the virus not get in, but actually escape the little vesicle um, that it's in when it first enters the cells and really basically avoid a path of destruction whilst then managing to replicate itself. And this is a protein called CD163, a scavenger receptor cysteine-rich protein, uh, again, another mouthful. But what that means is that it has, structurally, that protein looks pretty much like nine beads on a string, very globular uh, pieces that are one after the other, these scavenger receptor cysteine-rich domains, SRCR domains, or just let's call them beads. And what we've done is, it was found out that bead number five is the important binding partner for PERS. And we use genome editors to remove the single exon that encodes that bead uh, to remove that from the pig's genome so that the protein that's made has eight beats and it still folds and it still looks pretty much the part. It also does biologically function, but the pigs are no longer infectable with PERS because they lack the binding partner bead number five. Oh, wow. Why not just delete the entire protein? I mean, is the whole receptor necessary for something else? There's various functions associated with CD163, and it's also quite highly evolutionary conserved among mammal species. What is known from quite, for quite a long time already is that the protein is responsible for hemoglobin haptoglobin scavenging. If we have any lytic events of our red blood cells, heme actually gets out into the bloodstream, and it's what we call a reactive oxygen species. It can, it can damage our system Uh, our cells quite strongly. So that's why it's usually partnering up with haptoglobin that just prevents the biggest damage from happening. And then CD163 comes in and takes it up into macrophages and breaks it down to eventually bilirubin, which is very unthreatening to our body. 
But then there's other functions that were really found out when knockout mice were generated. And it seems that CD163 has very important immune system regulatory functions. So it regulates how an immune response happens, uh, especially keeping it local rather than going systemic. So if we have a lack of blood supply to our leg for some time, then CD163 will orchestrate the response only to happen in our in our leg and not happening in our entire body. And that's why we believe that removing CD163 entirely would truly hamper the overall health in the long term for, for pigs. And there's also another association with increased uh, sepsis rates in mice that lack CD163. And the third thing is that they're much more prone to asthma from dust mites, which in a dusty farm environment doesn't seem like something good for pigs to have. I see. So what about um, gene editing itself? How do you gene edit a pig? So the method we've used is that we generate the gene editors. So in our case, two small guide RNAs to work with the CRISPR-Cas9 system and the Cas9 mRNA in that case. We micro-inject it into a zygote, which is the first stage after fertilization of the oocyte with the the sperm. And then we transfer that zygote, literally only half an hour to an hour later, back to a recipient sow that then carries the zygotes to term. And that works relatively well. Um, We've since found out that it's probably better option to add the Cas9 protein just uh, together with the guide RNAs rather than the mRNA just because it takes a wee while for the mRNA to be translated and by that stage the zygote may have already divided to the next stage and we're in risk to get mosaic animals uh, much more likely than if we add the protein. So what is a new uh, method that is currently being developed uh, much more primarily in Canada as well, is to have options to cultivate spermatogonial stem cells, which are the stem cells that make sperm. And these could be edited in the lab, cultivated in the lab, and re-injected into the gonad of a recipient um, boar, so a male pig. And that would then be able to produce edited sperm and obviously uh, generate many more offspring um, in that process. I see. So so the way that you did it, though, just to kind of help listeners understand what happens, is you're actually um, taking the, the Cas9 RNA, so the RNA that encodes this uh, protein that does the gene editing, that does the nuclease function, cuts mm-hmm. DNA, and, and you're giving it a guide RNA, which gives it very specific instructions on where to go. And so this way, you're able to create this protein that does the cutting and then give it instructions on where to cut. And then the second thing you talked about was just putting the Cas9 protein in and that you micro-inject this protein. You use this really cool apparatus to inject this into a into an oocyte or into, or into a fertilized zygote. And this enzyme will go in, find the target, and do this cut. And so how do you know that it only does that particular 
procedure, that it's not doing more pervasive uh, cutting throughout the cell? Or, or do you check that? We have checked that in tissue culture. So in tissue culture cells, we can check that easily. The problem is with zygotes, because we're working with naturally fertilized oocytes, there is a degree of mutation going on and recombination in the zygote. And it's very, very difficult to figure out whether it's a genome editor that has introduced the change or whether it's the natural fertilization process that has introduced these changes. So we haven't seen much in tissue culture cells, um, but that is not to say that there's not an off chance of off-target effects. It's just that we cannot really um, say whether we have any, even, even if we try and do whole genome sequencing in the cycles or in the pig. Well, you have pigs that are alive and well right now. How are they responding to challenge with the virus? The simple answer is not at all. They have, they don't replicate the virus. They are not reacting even just with a very um, uh, slight cytokine response. There's nothing going on. And that is um, an amazing result. We we initially thought when we when we went into challenge with the cells first, because we first uh, took out macrophage cells from edited cells and challenged them in the lab with many different types of the virus just to see what happens before we actually expose animals to the virus. And we found there was absolutely no replication. And when we went to the animals, we saw exactly the same picture, which is amazing. It is amazing from the standpoint of the pig and from an industry that uses pigs that, that, that this would, you know, that this kind of technology would exist. It seems almost amazing. And is there any hope for commercial application in, you know, in Great Britain, the EU or US? For this specific project, we worked with one of the major players in pig breeding, which is a company called Genus PIC or Genus and their subunit PIC, who are breeding pigs professionally and they're very much interested and very much busy with implementing these animals. So what they're currently doing is that they're integrating the gene edits into their very highly bred elite pigs who are very productive and they're currently making these in the US in a specific um, research round. They're not going into any human food chain yet and just running these through the test, so making sure that there's no production traits affected so that the pigs still gain enough weight and produce lots of piglets and so on and so forth. And then this, at the same time, they're collaborating uh, or uh, talking quite vigorously with the Food and Drug Administration to see how the regulatory process is going to look like. The recent example that we've seen for genetically modified uh, food or animals and specifically is obviously the aquabounty salmon or the aquadvantage salmon, which has had the final nod from the US Congress really uh, late last year, uh, which regulates how the salmon has to be labelled. But that took 20 years to come to that point or almost 25 by the end of it. And it's interesting to see what happens with now these genome edited animals, which the pigs, they don't contain any foreign DNA. And it would be 
possibly a, a simplified route to approval, especially after the Trump administration or President Trump himself uh, has made an executive order to streamline the regulatory process for genome-edited genetically modified plants and animals a few weeks ago. It was strange to see scientists celebrate something that President Trump said. Um, and this particular executive order has been has come with great fanfare inside our industries who now see, especially those that need rapid genetic improvement in vegetables, fruits, or in um, livestock. And so it, it's kind of an exciting time that these kinds of technologies that would actually be um, implementable are there other groups around the world that are working on, I know there's many groups working on PERS, but are they using the same approach that you have used or are they using other approaches? For genome editing in PERS, there's, there's basically only CD163 on the horizon at the moment. And the group around Randy Prather in Missouri, they um, used a different approach in that they just disrupted the gene of CD163, which leads to a premature stop codon. So what's produced is a truncation of the protein in the end that is just degraded, very likely because it misfolds or because it possibly just doesn't get expressed very well either. So effectively, what the Missouri team have made are knockout picks, and they also seem generally healthy, but obviously it would be and, and that is something actually that has been seen in the mice as well. The mice with a knockout of CD163 are generally looking relatively healthy, but once they're actually challenged with um, immunostimulants of sorts and description, there's definitely defects to find in those mice. So possibly they're also there in the pigs. I see. So the uh, other efforts that are working along this line, it would seem like... Um, is there anything happening in China? Because I know they have really a massive pig population there and probably, uh, and, I, and I believe, significant issues with uh, with PERS. Uh, yes, there definitely is. And Gina's PIC, well, there have been many groups in China, first of all, who have replicated both the uh, domain 5 deletion, they have replicated the whole genome lock, gene knockout of CD163, and there's various permutations of these edits uh, still happening. And what's happening commercially is that Genus has started a collaboration with a Chinese company. The short name for them is BCA. And they're going to try and implement not only the pigs, but also talk to the government and get a solution with the Chinese government as to how these edited pigs should be regulated in China. Oh, excellent. You know, it really makes me happy to hear about uh, using something like gene editing to solve a critical issue in animal welfare that really will help animals on the farm, but also have tremendous economic impacts worldwide. Do you have any ability to comment on the progress at Roslyn and East African swine fever virus? Um, at the moment, I think they're still working on the latest results from the challenge in these African swine fever resilient animals. So the idea of these pigs was to just make them sustain the infection uh, more strongly. With the recent outbreaks of African swine fever that has 
well, recent outbreaks, recent outbreaks in China, which have really cost China about 30% of their overall pig production this year or their entire pig population this year. Um, that is going to have massive impact on driving further research into possibly making pigs completely resistant to African swine fever. But unfortunately, I think we don't we haven't found the golden bullet yet. So we've not found the CD163 for African swine fever just yet. And African swine fever is also quite a different type of virus. It's a very large DNA virus and it expresses so many proteins that it's possibly going to be a challenge to find just one cellular protein that is essential for the virus replication. Yeah, I remember we spoke with um, uh, Professor Bruce Whitelaw way back in 2016, I think. And it was really exciting at the time because they were just starting to get the project rolling. And I, they knew they didn't have pigs yet, or maybe just had the first pigs that would potentially carry the mutation to make it uh, resistant or tolerant to the virus. And uh, I'll have to at some point contact him again just to kind of see where that project goes. Because I, I love these projects where we're using genetic engineering solutions to solve problems that have that help these animals, but also help economically with farmers. Is there anything else I should ask you about with regards to your project or anything else at Roslyn? What my, what's always quite interesting is, is other things that people are working on uh, within this space. So for pigs, there's also been a development of making pigs resistant to a disease called transmissible gastroenter, gastroenteritis virus. Um, that is, again, the group around Randy Prather. But yet again, it's quite an essential protein that has very many um, biological functions and the way they've made to resistant animals is yet again by just knocking out the receptor, which is a good approach to get a first answer. But I think we need to probably improve or narrow down or on where exactly the virus interacts and hoping to um, get more precise answers. And the other things that are on the horizon definitely are for instance, avian influenza resistant chicken. There's recently been announcements that a protein called ANP32A has very important functions um, in influenza, avian influenza replication and that modifying that protein specifically can at least make chicken cells uh, completely resistant to the infection. And that's something that's being pursued in the chicken now in a collaboration here at Roslyn with Dr. Mike McGrew. Well, I'll have to check up on that one. So I remember uh, maybe way back and maybe episode seven, it was a long time ago that uh, she was, uh, that Professor Helen Sand was the, um, uh, was working on avian influenza. Is she still current there at Roslyn? Yes, yeah, she's still working. Uh, she's also working on that um, influenza, pro inf influenza project with Mike McGrew as well. Um, so in the past, they've made chicken who express what's called a decoy RNA that makes the virus produce basically uninfecting virus particles. And that decreases the shedding quite significantly of, of viable virus. But their new approach would not only remove the need for a foreign component to the chicken, but also make them 
hopefully completely resistant to avian influenza virus. Yeah, that that one really is really hits home for me because we have such a problem with avian influenza in certain years here in the states. And I remember when I first spoke with her, I thought, "What a shame that we can't implement this. Uh, uh, that it's not something that's out in the field." And um, it's exciting to hear that um, progress is still being made. And um, one of these days, I mean, I could actually come to Roslyn Institute and walk up and down the halls there and do nothing but compelling podcast material <laughs> because uh, well, it really makes me happy to know that all this is happening there. So thank you so, so much for joining me. It is If there people want to learn more about the project or learn more about you, are you present on social media or do you have a website? Um, we have a website in development for the lab, but unfortunately it's not online yet. But I'm on Twitter, not particularly active though, and I'm definitely on Facebook so people and on LinkedIn so people can contact me on whatever channel. Excellent. So I'll put that information on the final website for people who are listening. You can look at that at talkingbiotechpodcast.com. So thank you so much, Dr. Christine Burkhardt. Thank you so much for what you're doing for all my pig friends and, <laughs> and, to, and to accelerate the science and to ensure the uh, future of barbecue and all that good stuff. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast, uh, where as we approach 200 episodes and a million downloads, uh, it really makes me excited to think about the future of what we're doing here to help share the beautiful science that helps people and helps the planet and helps pigs. <laughs> I'm Kevin Folta. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.